have you heard any stories as to why your grandfather chose to leave his home in Sicily? I know exactly why I incorporated it into the book. Sicily had just been swallowed up by the Kingdom of Italy again because it, would, it had been conquered and reconquered. In 1860 or so, it was became part of the Kingdom of Italy, and a number of things happened. One of them was, because of the rampant corruption and the terrible judicial system and the, the, the poor police force on the island, the Sicilian Mafia, uh, the Cosa Nostra, rose and became more powerful, especially in the rural areas. And this was an organization that demanded taxes, protection money, if you will, from the local shopkeepers, the local farmers, and the young men would be inscripted into their ranks, whether they liked it or not. And my grandfather, when he was 18 years old, got a note slid under his door that simply said, you are now a member of Cosa Nostra, we'll call you when we need you. And his mother said to him, you have to leave. He left quietly in the night. With no family? He did it by himself? His... Just himself, yeah. No one else went. In the book, the three brothers go. But in, in, in real life, it was my grandfather came here all by himself. Wow, that's really a huge act of bravery. Leaving yeah. at 18 years old, everything you know, leaving it all behind, never knowing if you're going to see it again, and entering into who knows what. Welcome back to Legacy. This is episode three, Finding Your Voice. I'm Helena Drago. In our last episode, we talked about the importance of doing research to make your novel authentic. Following our own advice, Ty and I took a trip to Philadelphia. We checked out the Philadelphia port where millions of Italians immigrated to the U.S. Instead of our usual combo of backyard and wine, Ty talked about his writing at the Philadelphia port, which now stands in ruins. We also visited a museum dedicated to memorializing the Italian heritage, culture, and language, and we strolled through the modern-day Italian market and indulged in some gelato, truly stimulating Thai's creative juices. We have a lot to discuss today, so let's dive right in with Nick Santa, with Nick Santa, Sant Angelo, Santa, Santa Jello with Nick Santangelo, who was our guide during our visit of the... Oh, my God. With Nick Santangelo. Nick Santangelo. Sorry, Nick. I'm having trouble with your name. Nick was our guide during our visit to the History of Italian Immigration Museum. Here's Nick. Okay, so my name is Nicholas Santangelo. Oh, Santangelo. Sorry. So we are at 1834 East Pashunk Avenue. It's the History of Italian Immigration Museum. Uh, it was started in 2014, and it's part of a Feel Italia International. It's like a nonprofit uh, dedicated to preserving the Italian culture, language, history, things along those lines. Yeah, the top floor here has been turned into a museum. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the immigration, yeah. how many Italians came over. In the yes, so... It's from 1880 to 1920. That's the period of uh, immigration to this country by the Italians. Um, you have other groups like the Dutch and the Germans. The last big group that came before the Italians were the Irish, right around the Civil War. And then once 
the 1880s hit, you have an influx of Italians coming to this country. It's called the Great Arrival. It's the highest influx of Italian immigration to this country. The majority of the Italians that are coming to this country are from what's called the Mezzogiorno region. And Sicily's a part of that, where it's, you know, Rome, give or take, and below. So any, anywhere from the Abruzzo region to Campania, Puglia, Sicily, uh, Calabria, all these places are where the Italians are leaving and coming to America. Um, in Philadelphia, I think it's about 60%. Most of them are actually Abruzzese. And then we reach, I think it's about 5 million accumulative in that 40-year span. And that's only cut off because the government limits. They favor more of a Western or a Northern European descent coming into this country. They try to balance it out, so they say, quote-unquote, because they feel that they're being overwhelmed by like these Southern or Eastern European groups coming through. With the advent of World War One, yeah, I mean, it got a lot harder to come across the ocean. Oh, for sure, yeah. So I, I was, I figured that was one of the the big causes for the drop in immigration. Okay, so with with Italy and World War One, like there's Trieste and Dalmatia, these territories, which I guess are like in Croatia, they're shared territories with Italy or territories that they were promised once they aligned with the Allies, which were I think Russia, Britain, and France at the time during World War One, they would get them, and they wound up not getting it because. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said all those secret treaties were null and void. A lot of the Italians that would go and fight were once again from the southern portions of Italy. Like those families, it was, you know, a rarity, but you have like five kids in the family. Down south, it was at seven at a minimum because they were working on farms and whatnot. So it'd be like a good nine to 12 kids on average in a family. So a lot of these people would be shipped off from the south to go fight up in the north where the war was happening. They still kept coming over. I mean, they were our allies at the time. It wasn't like Mussolini in World War II where we had to send the Italian-Americans to go fight relatives, so to speak, in, in the old country. But, yeah, long story short, it's the government that says, I guess, no more of that. And that's why it cuts off so heavily. So once these, once these folks came over, they came, they'd come across, they'd come into the country, they'd come into the city. And then what? What, what do you do? You got hundreds of thousands of people pouring out, thousands a, yeah. a, a month a day, yeah. and most of them, from what I understand, came over with some kind of relative or friend of a family member that they could connect with. I'm trying to get a handle on. All right, they get here. Where do you sleep in that first night? What, yeah. what do you? Where do you eat? What comes next? <laughs> yeah. So I know. I th I think it's gone now. Palumbo's in the city. I know it was a tenant house. A lot of these early immigrants. They had to get sponsors. You know, we already have problems because they're not, like, nativists, obviously. They're not, like, born and bred here, so they have a different religion. They have a different skin tone of look, different culture, language. If you had these sponsors that had already been here, you know, the Palumbo's was one of them, and they would sponsor and, and have these people come and stay in the tenant house. Various, uh, how would I say, I guess job opportunities. You know, it, it ranges region to region. If you had come through and you decided to land at like West Virginia, or like, let's say like Pittsburgh, you'd probably be more of a coal miner or do something along those lines, as opposed to in the city, you could be a fruit peddler. I know there's like communities in New Jersey near where I live, like Hamilton, that are called like the blueberry capital of the world. A lot of Italians would be uh, picking fruit. It kind of ranges region to region, but uh, throughout every portion of where, you know, Italian communities would pop up, you'd have like barbers are a big mainstay. You'd have like fashion and apparel and leather cutters. Obviously the agricultural side of things because a lot of these people coming from that region of Italy 
are used to the agrarian society. Like a lot of my family would. One of them, he came over, he landed in, it was in New England, then he made his way to Philadelphia, and he was a barber. But his son was then working at the shipyard, my great-grandfather. He would work at the shipyard. My grandfather was, he was at the shipyard. Um, You have the Ninth Street Market in Philadelphia with Claudio's, um, Del Bruno Brothers, things like that. Started early on, like in the early 19-teens and so on. And they're still around today. Exactly, they're still here to this day, and it's the same families. So yeah, if you, if you couldn't find work, it seems a lot of these people would go and make work, be, you know, uh, your entrepreneurial efforts, so to speak. So if it wasn't like you couldn't get a job in a field, you know, sometimes a lot of these people would go and make their own, because they were just used to that. Our interview with Nick Santangelo, see, I can say it, was gold. The guy turned out to be a treasure trove of knowledge, the kind of stuff that's anywhere from hard to impossible to find on the internet. Doing research for a novel is about making connections. You need to take what you learn, the facts, the reality, and connect them to the parts of the story to which they apply. I guess you could call it the art of turning the truth into a plot device. Thanks to Nick, I'm already seeing in my mind's eye our three Sicilian brothers arriving at Pier 53 on Washington Avenue in Philadelphia. There will need to be someone to meet our heroes when they arrive. A family member, maybe. A a cousin or an uncle who made the trip some years before and is already established in Philadelphia. A paisan, perhaps. The literal translation is countryman. Not related by blood, necessarily, but close enough to be called an ally. In the Drago tapes, my father introduces a character named John Sacco, who owns a bar in Philly and is an obvious friend to the three brothers. I think he might be their sponsor, helping them get a foothold in their new lives. We'll see how that develops as the story continues to take shape. Nick's mention of Palumbo's is also interesting. This was a nightclub in South Philly that was hugely popular in the 1940s and 1950s. Sinatra performed there along with many others. It was destroyed in 1994 by a series of fires that some say were deliberate. But that's another story. For our purposes, it's important to note that Palumbo's was around in 1910 as a boarding house for newly arrived Italian immigrants. While my father doesn't mention the place by name, he does frequently refer to something he called the Italy Club. Whether he intended this to be a fictionalized Palumbo, I'm not sure. After our visit to Nick's museum, Helene and I headed down to what's left of Pier 53. The immigration building itself was torn down back in 1915. It's now a small but well-maintained wildlife refuge and memorial to Philly's Italian immigration. It's a quiet place, perfect for one of our little interviews. So we're sitting on the remnants of the pier where the Italian immigrants came through. Washington Avenue Pier. It's in ruins right now. We're in the city of Philadelphia and across the river, the Delaware River, is the city of Camden. And I can't help but reflect of all the Italians that came through this port, your grandparents and my grandparents for that matter. Came right through where we're sitting. Now it's all rotted pylons, old foundations, and some ducks. And they build a boardwalk that allows you to walk over the ruins. And I 
guess that's a monument. I don't know what that is. Over that's there. called the Land Boy, and it's a sculpture commemorating the immigration into, into the U.S. When we're finished here, we'll climb up to the top of it because that's what we do: climb to the top of things, and we'll take a picture too. Tell me a little bit about your grandparents and your grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, when he met my grandmother, he was 30 years old and she was 16. And he saw her on the street, apparently, approached the parents. He was an honorable Sicilian man, so he approached the parents to say, I would like to date your daughter. And dating their daughter meant he would go over to their house. He would sit in the chair in the living room and she would sit on the couch, my grandmother, with her mother on one side and her father on the other. And he would speak to the parents. That was a date. The only time he ever got to speak to her privately was when he would walk her to work in the mornings. So he was 30 and she was 16. she was 16. Yeah, they, they uh, you know, that kind of thing back then was perfectly normal. In fact, you did not approach the parents of an eligible maiden, if you will, until you could demonstrate you were a man of means. He would have had no shot dirt poor coming in at 18 and trying to date a 16 year old wouldn't have happened <laughs> at the very least he would have thrown out so he had to wait to demonstrate that he could provide for her so we just left the museum of italian immigration and coming to this pier we pass through of the italian american community in south philly it's almost a straight line to this pier, to that museum. You can see why there's a huge buildup of an Italian community around this area. Because this pier directly fed into it. Yes. All those Italians who came in through this pier and they developed the area that's now known as South Philly. It's been that way for more than a century. It's a beautiful view of the river. It was at this point that Ty talked a little bit about how this trip into Philadelphia is helping him in his writing process. We talked about the, um, the theme of this particular episode being process of writing, getting, getting started in your writing. And this is a research trip to get the juices flowing, and that's exactly what it's doing. I'm sitting here in, in a spot where the only remnant of what I'll be writing about are these ruins just beneath the surface of the water of the original pier, the pylons that held up the pier. But in my head, I'm picturing planking going out two, 300 feet into the water with docks on either side and these huge tramp steamers coming into the deeper water and hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children, most of them poor, coming out, frightened and excited they can't speak the language, they can't read the language, they have no idea what's coming next. And now, you know, it's so different. Now it's, you know, there's a sailboat out on the water, the spirit of Philadelphia is rolling up the coast. I found one picture of the Washington Pier around uh, 1915, just before it was torn down. So do you think this little trip is going to help with your writer's block? I guarantee it. What would you say to uh, all those writers out there on how they might stimulate their creativity? If you're writing a story that has a setting that you can visit, visit it. Sit there, breathe the air, look around, and then let your imagination rebuild what you're seeing. I am rebuilding the pier in my mind right now, as best I can, and try to understand what it would be like to step off that boat into this world 
that is so utterly alien. <sighs> wow. Sorry, I'm caught up in the moment. <laughs> all this research stuff is great, but you're probably asking what it all has to do with finding your voice, which is, of course, the title of this episode. Well, the short answer is everything. Helena and I sat down and talked about it at length. When it comes to writing a novel, what do you mean by trying to find your voice? Finding your voice means finding the style, the cadence, and the tenor of the writing so that you tell the story the way it should be told. Um, you can do this to a certain extent through dialogue, but it's more than that. You need to capture it in the narrative as well. You need to wrap your words in the, in the storytelling of the time and place you're in. Bring the reader into it. You want the reader to become fully immersed in the world you've created, and you do that by picking your language and picking your 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 flavor. Wait a minute. So I thought finding your voice was you choose who your narrator is, whether it's a character in your in the book, and then you you tell the story through the the eyes of that person. And that's the voice you're trying to find. That's point of view. That's different. It's related, because let's face it, it's all related, but it's different. When you write a book, there are, there are a couple of different storytelling methods, and this is point of view. One is called omniscient, where you're sitting on top of everything and you're telling the stories of your God looking down on what everybody's doing. You don't see that too much anymore, because it's, it's, it's difficult to relate to that. Other than that, they pick a main character. And whether you're telling it in first person or third person, you stay inside that character's head. Or you pick two or three characters and jump back and forth, as I'm going to be doing with this book. But that's not the same thing as finding your voice. Your voice is the style of storytelling, the way you're telling the story. I mean, imagine you're telling a fairy tale. You start off with once upon a time. And you make your, your cadences a little loftier. You make your, 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 your storytelling a little breathier, a little bit more metaphorful, you know, because it works better in a fairy tale environment. You wouldn't try to tell a fairy tale environment as if it was a 1930s gangster novel. It wouldn't work. It doesn't fit. You go back to the old Chandlers, and you know, and you read some of those, and he's talking about, uh, you know, the minute the dame walked in, I knew I was in trouble. She had that look, that look that just says danger. You know, you're not going to start a, a fairy tale story. The minute the princess walked in, I knew she was trouble. That pointy hat she had in her head just smelled danger to me. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. That's okay, finding that, your voice. That's a good example. With this book, with my dad's book, I have to go to 1910 Philadelphia. I have to go to 1910 Sicily. And I have to put myself not just in the character's head, but in that time and place. And what does that mean? When they're looking at the world, what are they seeing? This is a time before there were computers, before there was television, before there was even radio. So that's all the more reason why our research is important. That's what the research feeds. When you're doing research on a novel, what you're doing the research for is so that you can get your voice. You can figure out how you're going to tell it. Because everything that we discovered when we were in Philadelphia informs that. So, thanks to our trip to Philly, I have what I need to begin my dad's book. And begin I have. I'm close to 10,000 words in, 
though it's too early for me to tell how much of the overall novel those 10,000 words represent. But at least now that I've found my voice, I can push forward with confidence. I hope some of the discoveries and wisdom we shared in this episode will help you do the same with your story. You may have noticed that, this time around, we didn't hear even once from Tony. Well, as of our next episode, he'll be back in full force, this time introducing us to the characters he created. We'll be looking at tips and techniques for giving depth and humanity to the players on your literary stage, whether they occupy the spotlight or appear in more supporting roles. Characterization is a key piece of storytelling since, if you don't know who they are, how can you hope to introduce your characters to your readers? But that's next time. See you in two weeks. And between now and then, keep writing. I will. Legacy is written and produced by Helena and Ty Drago. Many, many thanks to Nicholas Santangelo, and my apologies for screwing up his name. Many thanks also go to the Phila Italiano International and the Italian Immigration Museum. The music you're listening to is Trieste, a royalty-free music performed by Josh Lippa and the Overtimers, found on YouTube's audio library. Thanks for listening.